The SaaS model is here to stay. 2020 was so far the year of software as a service industry because of a complex combination of factors including political changes that disrupted data processing agreements in the UK, the ongoing global pandemic that impacted every single industry but also validated the cloud service value proposition, and a record-breaking year for SaaS IPOs that derived in a fertile ground that make this last year a good one for the SaaS industry. With a new year on the horizon, in this episode, we'll recap the top 10 challenges that SaaS startups and companies have faced in 2020 and share tips from the experts on how to overcome them going into 2021. Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akhil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District, season number two. The first challenge that SaaS founders have had to face in 2020 was identifying the right go-to market strategy. If you're looking to launch and succeed in a brand new market or with a new customer, you need to be able to successfully organize a go-to market strategy. And here's my friend TK Catter, who speaks more about it. You as a founder, you woke up one morning and you're like, I'm going to go do this thing. And I'm going to go convince everyone else that this is the thing, right? That's what essentially a SaaS business is in these early stages. You have some unique insight that led you to that. You had some unique experiences that led you to that insight. And now your job really to get to $3 million is to convince as many of those people as possible. And so we help you create that strategic narrative and we help you create this thing called a manifesto that helps you really codify what your movement is why it exists and why others should also use your software, what they need to understand. And it's, a, it's about six to eight slides. We teach you how to do it in a very specific way. Nice. Um, and when you do that, a bunch of things happens. Your, it, your website becomes easier to write. Uh, your outbound emails becomes a lot clearer. Your lead magnet is a lot easier to make it easier to manifest to itself. How you talk about your startup, what your value prop is becomes a lot easier. So we work on creating that manifesto that helps you make all those things easier. It's so funny. Like I still do the uh, the sales calls for our go to market program, and every time like we're on a call, and I'll talk tell the founder, I'm like, okay, cool. Like, just tell me where you are in your business so I can understand if we can help you. By the way, I'm on your website right now. Like nine times out of ten, the founder will be like, oh, we're redoing the website. Like every single time. <laughs> like nine times because 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 startup founders are perpetually re- replacing their website because they haven't done the strategic narrative work to really define who they are and why they exist and why the people should care. And so they're constantly trying to tweak it to understand what sticks. But if you do the narrative work, then it becomes a lot easier to do those things. Hmm. So first part is initial customer profile. Second is your manifesto, your narrative. And the third is we help you run a Broadway show. Uh, A Broadway show is like, if you think about your average startup, every week they're trying to figure out like, what new thing do we do to get attention? Um, and that's almost like creating a new show every week and trying to get people to pay attention. Like a lot of founders I talked to, they're like, oh, we hired a content person. They're blogging. It's like, first of all, the results of SEO are like 18 months out. Second of all, blogging does not lead to action for your product and for your sales process. So that's the wrong way to go. So we help you run a Broadway show that puts the manifesto in the middle of it and helps you get attention and helps you have customer conversations on a, on a weekly basis based on that Broadway show. And those three things, your initial profile, your initial customer profile, your manifesto and your Broadway show, 
we train you on how to do that and run it. And that builds your predictable go-to-market machine. It's the same strategy that I use that Tout app, same strategy that Marketo used numerous times to their journey. Uh, same strategy that a lot of successful startups use, but we've codified it in a way so it's easy to follow for founders. So you don't have to be a marketer, but you can follow the steps so you can get the momentum going, so you can go get revenue flowing, so you can go raise that next round and then go build out the bigger team. Uh, so you, so you, you, kinda, you can kind of uh, start to get kickstart that growth. Number two, once you've identified your go-to market strategy, the next thing is to make sure you have a viable business model that provides a clear value proposition. Your market is clearly defined and you have enough customers who want or need your product to enable you to grow and validate your business model. So that is what a viable business model is. So we have a couple of people we've, we've spoken to, including Mike Watts, Thomas Peterson, and Dimitro Grechko, who are, now, who are experts in that field. To make, make one, you know, something you can demonstrate, and this might be with a, if it's a physical product, right? Let's just take, assume for a moment that it is a physical product. See if you can make a prototype something that can be shown. And if you can't physically make one, make a rendering of it, right? And even if it's just for yourself, use those resources to create something that demonstrates your product, right? Visually demonstrates it, whether it's a, just an in-person video you made with your phone or it's a visual rendering or whatever. And then spend some dollars and putting it on a few different social media channels and see what kind of engagement you get. Um, the alternative or supplemental piece to that is it's very inexpensive to start a Kickstarter Indiegogo campaign. And it's essentially doing the same thing that what we're talking about. You're proving a model for an idea to see if you can get people. And the great thing about those is you can raise money without ever giving up any piece of your company. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and, and then get feedback and develop to continue developing the product. So you have an idea and it's a thousand dollars and I think it's a good, nice limiting budget, right? It's a small amount of money. Uh, in the bigger scheme of things, and starting a company, but you can do some of those things and bootstrap your way through it. And if you can demonstrate it, then you're going to know very quickly should you go get some more money or find some more money to keep working on it. Uh, there's no shame either in just taking the thousand and say, okay, well, I'm going to just I'm going to keep at this until I can turn it into two thousand. Right? How do I go about making a few of these and selling those and then taking pre-orders or whatever and get to two thousand? Prove to yourself that it can be a profit center and not a hobby. Because so many people try to take a hobby, turn it into a business, end up cashing their 401k in and all their life savings and pushing it towards this dream of an idea that never really had hope. It should have just made one for themselves. The third challenge, hiring top talent employees. SaaS companies are known for being revolutionary. However, most founders will tell you is that the reason why for their success, they'll credit a lot of it to having the right team. But when it comes to attracting top talent, companies fail in doing so because A, they don't have a high performance talent attraction strategy or the objective strategy does not assess the experience of the recruits. So if you're the employer, what do you want to know? Well, you want to know, do they have the skill, mm -hmm. the skills, yeah. right? So if you're hiring a, a, a financial controller, well, they have, to have a, they have to have the skills, right? You have to know that they've controlled before. Do they have the knowledge? So do they have a CPA degree? Have they worked in SaaS businesses? Um, you know, if you're a SaaS business and you're, do they have domain expertise? Uh, you know, for Odesk, did they, are they coming from eBay? Or have they worked at another marketplace company? Or do they have a labor or talent experience? And then there's the motivation 
right? What's the motivation of the employee that you're hiring? What do they want to do in life? What do they want out of this job, out of this career? What, where do they want to go? Like what's important for that? And then the fourth thing is the personal characteristics. Who is this person? So you got personal characteristics, motivation, skill, and knowledge. That's the criteria you as a SaaS founder should be using to hire people. And I would argue that the most important thing in there are the personal characteristics. Because those are the things that you can't change. And in this environment, if somebody's going to be working remotely, you need people that are hardworking, smart, motivated, competitive. They have to have drive. Because there's so many distractions, it's so easy to say, I'm going to go work out, I'm going to go for a bike ride, I'm going for a hike, I'm going to go fix the garage. Like, There's too many distractions in the home. You need people that are self-motivated and that have uh, the desire to work hard. They're wired for speed, not comfort. And so you can't teach those things. So if you don't hire with somebody with those characteristics in the first place, they're never going to have them. You can't teach smart. And so yeah. I encourage you to prioritize personal characteristics, motivation, skill, and knowledge. Now, there's certain levels of skill and knowledge to get in the game. You're not going to hire a, a, C, a, a CFO who doesn't have a CPA degree. That's table stakes. But are they right. smart, strategic, hardworking, and do they, can they get excited, the motivation piece, can they get excited about the job that you're offering and waking up every morning and doing this job, not for the next 90 days, but for the next nine years, right? And so interviewing for personal characteristics and motivation over skill and knowledge is my advice. Number four, the fourth challenge that a lot of founders face in 2020 was raising capital. How do you go out there and secure funding for your startup? We understand it can be both challenging and exciting as part of running your business. But with so many options in space, how do you choose the right one and how to structure them properly in order to secure them? That's why we talk about the fourth challenge, which is raising capital. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, one of the places I would look at is definitely Crunchbase or somewhere like AngelList. So the reason I would look at those um, options is actually see what uh, other investments and or ventures that this particular VC or this particular angel fund has invested in before. This would be public information after they've actually already invested. And then you can ask yourself, well, are these people partners? Are these people competitors? You know. Why did they invest in them? Are they going to invest in me in the same way? And, um, you know, if you can, what was their valuation? And on all of these kinds of questions. So this should all be part of your research when you're choosing the right partner. If somebody is investing in your direct competitor, they might not be very good for you to choose from. So it may be a wasted effort for you to even apply. However, if it's a great partner within your industry, then that is something you should actually bring up during your pitch meeting because it shows that you know your industry really well. You know what's going to move you forward in terms of your roadmap. But even more importantly, you have done your homework and your research. So you really do deserve um, this, this time and you really deserve um, having having the capital in order to, to move forward with your business. If you want to get investment, you have to create an investable business. 
Right. That does not mean you're going to create the best business. It just means you're going to create an investable business. So that is a type of business that would generate a certain kind of trajectory in terms of your return on investment, right? Mm -hmm. um, but is that really the best one that you're ever going to create? Maybe, maybe not. If that really depends on your personal beliefs and your experiences, your backgrounds and the expertise of your team. However, um, most most um, companies will be bootstrapping. That has happened in the past and will still happen in the future because such a low percentage actually get funding. It's just that we think it's a lot because we hear it on the media a lot, of course, right. because it's a news thing. It's a, it's a, it's a flashy thing and it's something to be celebrated usually in our culture. However, right. all it is, is that um, there was a, the, the, the part the managing partner of a 500 startups said this best. He said, Fundraising shouldn't be something that is this celebrated, in, especially in Silicon Valley. It's like yeah. saying that the cook just got all of his ingredients, but you haven't made anything yet. So why are you celebrating right after he did all the shopping? And That's it was right. a really funny thing to say. What separates a great customer onboarding experience from a bad one is the onboarding strategy. To not just show customers how to navigate your software, it's also showing them how to effectively use it to maximize their outcome. The onboarding function of most companies tends to be both the unsung heroes of, of, of the organization, but also, I think, really underutilized and, and unfortunately neglected in a lot of cases. And companies need to be more proactive and spend more time thinking about the onboarding process internally for their own teams. But even more importantly is how does it affect the customer experience? Because the customer experience has already started uh, probably through the sales process. But if not, it's definitely starting as soon as they log into your app for the first time. And so that really is where you need to, to, be, to be proactive. And, and it starts with planning and having processes. And it's surprising how little process many companies have, even big companies. Um, and so for us, thinking about, you know, what are, if you, you know, articles all over the internet, that say really poor, poor onboarding experience is one of the, you know, the primary number one or number two reason for, for customer churn. And if you are a SaaS business relying on subscriptions, you need to keep your customers. Uh, everything you do uh, from a business perspective relies on customers staying with you, right? Like, because otherwise the, the whole dynamics of your business have to change. So um, I think the number one thing to think about uh, from an onboarding perspective is build process uh, and, 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 and invest in your onboarding practices from an organizational perspective, um, which usually means having people that do it full time. Uh, that's the first sort of the first step I think that we did when we got to about 20 people in Ambassador. We had someone who their whole job was to onboard customers. And, and I think that's really important. The number six challenge for SaaS companies, customer experience and support. Some of the best SaaS companies have reached long-term customer success because of their good practices around their customer experience. Designing and delivering a great customer experience and support in their service is crucial to their success. Some of our friends, Peldi and Joy, speak a little bit more about the customer experience they've built for their SaaS companies. It's not really a goal, but it's more about um, trying to understand uh, our customers are, uh, as best as we can. And so, um, and if we can, uh, infuse a little personality, a little, you know, special touches yeah. into our software, uh, we like to do that because it just, again, I think it makes for a better user experience overall. So 
One example that we have that gets a, uh, that is appreciated a lot is that in our help menu in the in the app when you you know you go to help there's uh, get support report a bug uh, documentation yeah. what should I make for dinner <laughs> what so <laughs> yeah, we have this feature and so you, you click on that and it takes us to to our website where one of our employees uh, has made 150. YouTube videos of very quick recipes that you can do uh, wow. very quick, right? And wow. the idea is we know that our customers, when they use our tool, they lose track of time because mm -hmm. it's so, they get in the flow, it's so creative, right? Yeah. And inevitably, it gets 5 p.m., 6 p.m., they have to run home, and the, and now the stressful question is always the same, why should I make it? So we try to help you even uh, at the end of your day. So... That's just one idea that we have. Another uh, thing that we did, for instance, is uh, in our loading screen, mm -hmm. right? There's a little loading and sometimes you're, you're loading a large project, so it takes a few seconds. Mm -hmm. So instead of just showing a little progress bar, under the progress bar, we put an inspirational quote, mm -hmm. right? So you're, you're waiting to start your day and that way you get inspired a little bit while nice. you're waiting, right? Nice. So it's funny because people now complain that our software is too fast and they can't read the quote fast enough. Uh, you know, people ask us to make our software slower instead slower. of faster. <laughs> I, I actually read that another, uh, by the way, I love both of those examples. That's, that's fantastic. I would never thought of that. I read another company where they, they did the same thing where they had a, a loading image and uh, it actually dropped their conversions and their sales because when they removed it, because people felt like, no, this is too fast. It's not working as good as it should be. It needs to take time to process and work, but right, it's a weird exactly, cycle. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Another example is we put uh, we added background music. Okay. Um, uh, you can uh, go edit, play background music, and it's this very soothing music that helps you focus. Mm. And we made it 25 minutes long, which is the length of a Pomodoro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the Pomodoro technique? Of course, yeah, yeah. And then we have uh, five minutes of bird sounds that we recorded which means get up and stretch and take a take you know take a break wow. go get some water and then it restarts again with another pomodoro so it's these awesome. little things that um some people might not consider software mm -hmm. but for us they're they're an integral part of the experience of using our tool um if they help you be more successful why shouldn't we uh put them in you know that's awesome so we're constantly looking for these little things and we don't want to go overboard. We, we're not, you know, yeah. we don't want to be cheesy or anything. Only what's useful. Leads are known as the blood flow of your company. Without being able to consistently generate leads, you won't be able to scale in a predictable manner. That being said, challenge number seven is lead generation. How do you generate high quality leads? Here are a couple of guys who speak about how to do it effectively and at the scale level. There's a few ways to filter. One is just through your messaging. Um, and I, had, I talked to too many founders. I just talked to one the other day. And he said, hey, what's your target? And he said, well, anyone in sales is our target. I said, well, anybody who sells? Well, that's pretty much anybody. But anybody who sells? He's like, yeah, that's our target. And I said, okay, this is a, this is a problem. It sounds great. And he even said, we're going to cast a really wide net. The problem with that is you have to use very general targeting, very general messaging. And when somebody goes and sees your messaging, it's not going to resonate with them, regardless of where they are. And so it's much better 
to actually find we fit really well for this person, this uh, vertical, this segment, because you're going to be able to message to that exact person. And it sounds great to a founder. I'm, I've been guilty of it myself. Oh yeah, everyone. Let's get as much as we can. And when you're hungry and young, you've got no business, anybody you'll take, right? But actually you get better when you niche down. They say the riches are in the niches. Hmm. And you find that segment that you're perfect for. Because guess what? If you're selling to all salespeople, there's zillions of software out there that any salesperson can find and they all get pitched to about it. But if you say, we're for this salesperson that does this in this industry, then they're going to say, whoa, this is built exactly for me. One of the best pieces of advice I've gotten is your marketing, your messaging shouldn't sound good to everyone. Hmm. Your messaging shouldn't sound good to a lot of people. It should sound great to your perfect customer. That's how you do it. Now, it may mean nothing to anybody else. For me, if I say, I am going to help SaaS founders between zero and two million bucks, between zero and 10 million bucks, whatever it is, I'm going to help them scale and learn how to close deals really quickly. That sounds great to a software founder. But to another person in sales, they're like, oh, I don't think that's for me. And that's fine. I'm going to focus on this. And that works really well for me. So my biggest advice is don't be all things to all people. Figure out what you're great at and sell to those people. Number eight, you may have the best product in the world, but if no one knows about it, it's like not having anything at all. So you need to position your solution out there, have people talking about it, and effectively market it. Challenge number eight that we've had was marketing your SaaS company. We've had guests like Rand Fishkin, Neil Patel, Kieran Flanagan from HubSpot, and many, many others share their insights on how to effectively market your SaaS company. Yeah, yeah. So in, in the post, I sort of detail like my, my big three criteria, which are an area where you have personal passion and interest. Yeah. Right. So if, if you, you know, if you tell me, oh, I hate LinkedIn, like I just hate using it. I don't like posting there. It might work well for a lot of B2B SaaS companies. It's not going to work well for you. Yeah. Right. Like if you don't personally enjoy it, you don't have any passion, you don't have any interest, you don't like the channel, you don't like the tactics, it's not going to work for you. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that, that is uh, the first one on my list. Second one is an area where you provide unique value, value that is differentiated from what everyone else in the field offers. Okay. Um, and that is, you know, that's going to be tough. Like if you tell me, hey, I want to start a, um, whatever, a B2B SaaS podcast, I'd be like, okay, well, there's a lot of competition out there. Like Akil's running a great one. What are you, what, like, what are you, what are you going to do differently? How are you going to provide value that is unique from what all these other podcasts are doing out there? Or if you're, I'm launching a YouTube channel, fine. What's unique from all the other YouTube channels? Why are people going to come to you instead mm. of um, anyone else? I think SaaS founders are great at thinking about this when it comes to their product and their business. Mm-hmm. They're not great at thinking about this when it comes to their marketing. Yeah. Right. And you need that differentiation, that competitive advantage, that unique value proposition around your marketing as well, especially those first one or two channels Mm -hmm. uh, or tactics. And then the third and final criteria that I have uh, for where to start your marketing is you need to find a place that actually reaches your audience. Mm -hmm. Right. So if if you love visual content and posting on Instagram and uh, Pinterest and um, you know uh, putting your visual content out there on your website and getting into Google Images, yada yada, but 
your audience does not consume visual content around your, which is very unusual, visual content for users. <laughs> but sure. if your audience doesn't consume the the um, content or the or doesn't use the channel or doesn't uh, resonate with the tactic that you're employing, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. So you you got to hit these three. You have personal passion and interest. You can provide unique value, and it actually reaches your audience and the people mm-hmm. that that are going to buy your product. Boom. Mm-hmm. Those are the channels and tactics I would recommend you consider for your first one or two. And I would not start with 10 or 20 or 50 channels. I would start with one or two. Maybe one is organic and one's paid. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to recommend organic before you do paid because paid benefits so much from brand building and brand affinity. And, right. and if you can get people to already know who you are, like you, trust you, visit your site, um, retarget and remarketing to those folks when you're in a niche like like B2B SaaS is yeah. way, way better than trying to, you know, um, get this, you know, spend thousands of dollars a month on Google ads and Facebook ads and draw awesome. people in who've never heard of you. That's, that's really tough. Number nine, lowering and managing your churn rate. Founders justify spending all their money and efforts on getting new clients and investing in marketing budgets. What they don't worry about is adjusting their churn until it becomes a major problem to scaling. Trying to fix your churn after things have already gone off the rails is really, really hard. The chances of success are really low at that point. That's why challenge number nine is all about managing your churn rate with Patrick Campbell. Yeah, it's a good question because I think that a lot of times we lose sight of metrics and analytics are only useful if you're going to use them. Right. And I think for most uh, most businesses just starting out, and I would argue to a to a good size, you know, even you know up to about a hundred million, like the standard method for calculating churn makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. I think once you once you kind of get to a little more sophistication, which might happen before a hundred million, hopefully it does happen before a hundred million, <laughs> um, you start to realize that there's dozens of ways you could calculate churn. Um, I think we wrote an article once that said, "Hey, here are the forty-three different ways that we found to calculate churn, and why you should just." use the simple one. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason is, is because if you're more sophisticated, meaning you have analysts or you're using tools like ProfitWell and stuff like that, um, and you understand your numbers and you want to get to a truer sense of churn, um, then you should make it more complicated. So if I'm a, um, a box of the month club, like Blue Apron, for instance, um, everyone, you know, in the public markets, you know, likes to, uh, you know, talk crap about Blue Apron because they're comparing it to Zoom. These companies and their churn rates should not be compared because Blue Apron probably should really start their real churn probably two months in because it's such an acquisition-focused product and we know there's going to be a bunch of churn. Mm-hmm. And Zoom should be you know looked at as a very traditional um, B2B SaaS company. And so I think right. that's the big thing. And, and to give you some more tactical nature, um, I already alluded to this, but it depends on kind of your buyer, right? So if you find out that your buyer is um, you know a lot more episodic, well, then maybe those customers that come back every three months and you can kind of know that with a good level of certainty, maybe you don't count them in your churn or maybe that you put another like line on the report that you're, you know, distributing to your investors or your board um, rather than kind of just reporting that one number. But I think that also Mm -hmm. shows a different one other problem that I just alluded to is you always need to go deeper. I think an aggregate number is 
not useless. It's good for looking over time and obviously improving and using as kind of like a God metric. Yeah. But ultimately, you have to go deeper and deeper. What's the churn of this plan versus that plan? What is the retention of this plan versus that plan? And I'm a big fan of looking at um, either gross logo churn, so basically how many customers are leaving, mm-hmm. um, and also net revenue retention, and then breaking that down so you can find what are the pockets of customers who are amazing for your business and what are the ones that are not so good, and then get more of the former and get less of the latter. We've heard about overnight millionaires. It's often some tech founder who exited their company for a large amount of money. But that's not true. The overnight millionaire is usually a smart entrepreneur sitting on a potential gold mine. You have to know how to exit and you have to optimize your business well in advance. That's why the final challenge, number 10, is exiting your SaaS company. We've had excellent guests such as Sujin Patel and Andrew Gasdecki from MicroCryer talking a little bit more about it. Elements of the product, it doesn't even one factor. It's like, what's okay. the product? And is this a must-have or a nice-to-have? Nice. I don't care about competitors. Like mm. every one of my businesses... Well, first of all, every, the, the SaaS space is way competitive, right? Like there's just too exactly. many. There's so many people. So like competition, that's fun. Cool. Like that's actually a good sign that there's a market here. But I, I think I'm not worried about like having 20, 30... Mailshake has 82 competitors according to mm-hmm. G2, right? Yeah. Um like, fine. Okay. No big deal. Right. Mm-hmm. Biggest competitor outreach, billion. Smallest one on like 10K and MRR. Right. So, like, doesn't matter. Um, but is the, what, what's the product? Like, is it good? Like, do we have to rebuild it? Like, is it, is it core? How do we make it core? Like, what's the potential of this product? If I can analyze a product 10 different ways, which I normally do, mm-hmm. it's, it is like I'm buying the product and everything that's kind of been done around it. And in mm. most of our companies, the product is the growth engine. Marketing is fuel. Sales is like rocket fuel. But the engine is still the product. And right. without, with a shitty engine, after to rebuild it, it is... Then you buy the marketing. And that's yeah. great too. These days, marketing is more expensive than product. Like meaning what it takes to build a product. Sure. But you have to be aware. Are you buying a marketing engine? Or are you buying a product? And... Yeah, there's a lot of that. <laughs> Very different. And I, I think there's the market in my mind, the market shifting to like, it's almost better off buying the marketing because it's, it's less expensive and less timely than buying, building the product. But mm. arguable of the risk factors and, and, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't only invest on the, on the marketing side with the poor product. But like, look at guys like Neil Patel, right? Neil bought Uber Suggest. Freaking. Good product, but Neil brought his traffic. And the, the yeah. traffic, sorry, Uber suggests traffic was ridiculous, right? All he had to do was figure out ways to monetize it. And then he like combined it with his traffic, which made it like a huge funnel. Mm-hmm. And I think he, you know, he, he got to pretty good growth, like multi-million in, in, in growth, just like monetizing traffic with exactly. the product, right? So mm-hmm. those are gems. Those are hidden gems and also situational. But I'm looking for more of that than like mm. a company that is under-marketed. And that was kind of our thesis in 2015 is like, we're good at marketing and operating efficiency. We can run it better and we can do a better job mark- growing it than most around. And our thesis and concept now is like, well, look, everybody's doing this. There's lots of companies doing this. What are we really good at? We're really good at growing companies, operating them effectively, building teams, 
And where do we want to spend our time for the next five to 10 years, right? We've mm-hmm. already proven out the concept. You know, I'd say six, even the one that was, even the two deals that are bad, we're still up on. Like if we go sell mm-hmm. them, they're still worth more or the same than we bought them for it. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com. And myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.